Where is your fear? You tell me that you left your fear behind you, along with Playdays and Lego. But I know better. It's locked up in you, locked away in a cupboard or some form of lockable cabinet. Is it? It is. You've hidden your cupboard of fear, haven't you? Yes. You've hidden it under the settee. Is your fear still there? Is it? Is it? Is my fear still locked under the settee in a cupboard or some form of lockable cabinet? Is it, Mummy Daddy? Is it? Is it? No. It's not. I've lifted up your settee with help from the Mayday so I wouldn't put my back out. And I've unlocked your cupboard. I found the key on top of the microwave under the takeaway menus. And I have seen your fear. Now, I'm going to put fear on you. Like a dress. Like a scary skirt hemmed with horror. Or like a one-piece terror onesie made out of snakes or whatever shit you're afraid of. Like, like, like heights! Like heights! Oh! Oh! Oh, my dress, it gives me vertigo! Help me! Help me! No one can. Except for I. I am Thaddeus Bent. Teller of tales. Master of the Macabre. I'm the 13 Taekwondo Champion of Great Britain. Welcome. This tale could be for you. Or you. Or you. Or indeed anyone who has ever felt inadequate due to their physical appearance. For tonight's tale concerns a remarkably unremarkable woman. Picture her as mannequin standard, run-of-the-mill, neither too fat, nor too thin, nor too curvy, nor too slim, and completely nippleless. Perched atop her skull was her most remarkably unremarkable feature, her face. Not ugly per se, just desperately, desperately plain, like a whitewashed cottage wall or this year's Oscar nominees. Her name was Isabella Duncanmetropolis.com. Hundrum and boring. Every morning, Isabella would sit her white bread features down at her work desk, take out her Spider-Man pencil case, which she wrongfully thought made her seem kooky, and stretch her placid lips into the vague approximation of a smile. Sometimes she'd wear glasses. Sometimes she'd dye her hair in impractical colour like blonde. But still, nobody noticed her. Every day she'd watch as all the other attractive men and women would gather at the water cooler, laughing, joking, and snorting cannabis, and Isabella would sigh mournfully, knowing that her evenings would be spent with her cats, watching back-to-back episodes of Two Broke Girls. Oh, how I wish I was pretty, she would say, foreshadowingly. One evening after work, Isabella was waiting by herself at the bus stop, watching the buses pass her again and again, because as we have established, her features were indistinct and infinitely ignorable. It was then that Isabella saw the shop. She could have sworn it hadn't been there the day before. In the centre of a row of two-storey structures was a 275-foot spire of jagged obsidian, 
painted in a once lavish hot pink, now faded from years of weathering weather. Its uppermost extremities were obscured by a thick black pall of jet black fog, which even on this warm July evening flickered as tendrils of lightning lashed at a pink plastic banner cable tied to the dark battlements. The banner read, Faces by Claire. Oh, like a great little startup company. Maybe a makeover would make my appearance more palatable, said Isabel. She stepped up to the heavy iron door and pressed the buzzer. Turn back, said the novelty doorbell. For the love of Christ and all his saints, turn back! Then Isabella noticed the door was open anyway, smiled to herself, and stepped through the portal, which is just an old word for door and nothing sinister. The first thing that Isabella noticed as she entered the beauty parlour was the gentleman sat in the corner of the room. He was nine foot tall and red. She studied the man's crimson complexion, blackened ram's horns protruding from his widow's beak and what appeared to be cloven hooves casually crossed on a poof. You must be Claire, asked Isabella. The red-faced man stroked his forked chin, his crimson brow furrowed in recognition. What? he intoned. I was wondering if you could give me a makeover so that the bus driver would notice me and stop. I could do this very easily, my dear. Your face is literally a blank canvas. I could make you look like anybody. Give you anyone's face. Anyone that you'd ever known. Isabella fought long and hard. She recalled the words of her mother, who had once told her that beauty was only skin deep and it was what was inside that really counted. But she had been an alcoholic and often leave her unattended in parks. I want to look like Sophie Alice Baxter! She shouted. From accounts! She clarified. And indeed, she had chosen wisely. For Sophie Alice Baxter was a shrewdly attractive, high-flying business type woman who bore an almost uncanny likeness to the celebrity personality, Charlie Steron. Once all the paperwork had been concluded, she shined the ancient parchment, shook his claw, and watched him reach for a small parcel wrapped in hot pink paper and tied with a white satin bow, proffered to him by a skeletal hand from beneath the counter. Isabella seemed strangely drawn to the package, like a diabolical flame teasing a Faustian moth. She opened the parcel, and there, hidden under a frankly excessive amount of packaging, was the face of her dreams. The beautiful face of Sophie Alice Baxter from accounts stared back at her, a packing peanut lodged cheekily between her teeth. Isabella gingerly lifted out the face, and with her own placid visage lost in daydreams, she went home to find her father's carpet stapler. Now that she had a brand new face, Isabella found her life changing very quickly. Everyone thought she was someone different, someone attractive and cool, and surrounded by friends, many of whom were polyamorous. She quickly learned that traditionally attractive people were stupid, but had a lot more sex. 
Yeah. Isabella decided to enter a dance competition. Partially as a show of her newfound confidence slash face, but mostly to grind herself against the other contestants. Waving her bootay to Mike Oldfield's tubular bells, a favourite piece of vinyl that she'd been very lucky to win in her surprisingly amicable divorce, she turned her attention to the judges' table, and her mouth dropped open in shock. It was none other than Ed Sheeran from the legal department, who bore an almost uncanny likeness to the late singer-songwriter, Prince, and an even more uncanny likeness to the artist formerly known as Prince. Finally, Isabella thought to herself, with my new face, I can win the contest, seduce Ed Sheeran, and finally find out what he keeps in those sensible chinos. Sidling up to her prey like a femme fatale crab, she leaned into his ear and whispered sensuously, Hi, I'm Sophie Alice Baxter, from Accounts. Fancy it? No thanks, said Ed Sheeran dismissively. You're the village bicycle of this parish, and it's an established fact that you're riddled with SATs. Even those who consider Priscomua to be, to be suppressive slander employed by the patriarchy think you're a slag. And besides, I prefer something plainer, chuckled Ed Sheeran, swigging from his stein of banana daiquiri. Hearing him say that, well, it broke poor Isabella's heart although not as badly as she broke his face with her grandfather's serrated trench knife, which she kept on her at all times, for sentimental reasons. Murder on the dance floor! Shouted someone at the back, but it was too late. And before anyone could stop her, she had drenched the place in gasoline, barred all the fire exits, and burnt that goddamn house right down. My daiquiri! Isabella ran from the torch building as fast as she could, tears streaming through Sophie Alice Baxter's eyes. She didn't want to be pretty anymore. She just wanted to be her plain old self, although perhaps with a bit of blush and mascara to bring out what little features she had. So she ran, all the way back to the place where the tale had began. Back to Faces by Claire. Finding the door unlocked, she burst through the portal, which is now an actual portal like in Ghostbusters. And there, standing in the middle of the shop, was Sophie Ellis Baxter from Accounts. Where her face had once been was nothing. Smooth, like an egg in a wig, or a Mr. Potato Head without any of the bits. She beckoned Isabella inside, through the lobby and down the stairs, to the centre of hell itself. And at the centre of that crucible of brimstone and hellfire and lavender, sat the red-skinned man, who for those slow on the uptake is actually the devil. Oh, please, Claire! shouted Isabella. I don't want this face anymore. I want mine back. I've had enough of dramatic irony. I'm afraid that's quite out of the question, my dear, said the devil, laughing maniacally as he pulled back his tight white vest to reveal Isabella's plain old face smiling garishly from his left petrol. Be careful what you wish for! It said, The End.
Dear Thaddeus, I have been living with a hip replacement for 18 months and have come to the conclusion that it is haunted. Oh, well, Clive, that's... Uh, that's not an unusual... That's not an unusual oddity, actually. Uh, I was recently contacted by a woman from Skipton whose Zimmer frame had become uh, extremely uh, malignant uh, and had, had actually been um, getting school children into Satanism. It was pretty awful, actually. Anyway, I, I'll read on. I was a merchant seaman in my salad days and went from port to port sampling local culture. I do hope you're talking about yoghurt, Clive. I wasn't one of those Brits aboard who just has a fry-up and then goes to find an English pub. Not when you can have steamed rice, opium and a geisha on the same tray. I wore my original hip out by the time I was 28. I had a lot of local culture. That's not really the kind of attitudes that we encourage in modern times, Clive, although I confess it has a certain exotic appeal to it. I got a new hip in 1989, but I wore that out when I was a skipper of an 18 to 30 boat in Magaluf. Where is this going? I'm in sheltered housing now, but a very talented theatre company composed of some nice young ladies came and put on a show. When the bangles walk like an Egyptian came on, I joined the girls on stage and my hip just went into overdrive. I'm not comfortable reading the rest of that, uh, ladies and gentlemen. But if you do have an evil prosthetic, uh, write in, please. Hateful man. R uh, right, right. Uh, okay, so uh, the next one... I don't know if I can find it here. And the next one, I think, is from... Yes, it's uh, it's from Mark. Mark is a local boy, local to Liverpool. Uh, he lives in one of the big flats, just at the top of, of Upper, Par Upper Parliament Street. And Mark writes, <clears throat> Dear Thaddeus, I never much cared for my girlfriend's hamster, John Nettles. That is the hamster's name. She likes Midsummer Murders. I don't. It's too posh. John Nettles always wound me up, scrabbling around my flat at night while I was watching DS9. Brackets, that's Star Trek Deep Space Nine. When we moved house eight months ago, I saw my chance. John Nettles' cage was in the boot of our car, so I slyly undid the clips that held the bottom of the hamster's cage, and when my girlfriend picked it up, it fell out into the road. I ran over as quickly as I could to help, and I was skillfully and deftly able to sidefoot John Nettles the hamster down the grid. That's pretty appalling behaviour, Mark. I did my drama B-Tech crowd with my horrified reaction, and I purchased the takeaway by way of an apology, and slipped a sleeping pill into my girlfriend's Sue Mai. Within 30 minutes, I was switching off celebrity juice and settling down to the Jem'Hadar war in Deep Space Nine. John Nettles wasn't finished though, and a week later, I was sitting on our balcony having a coffee, and I looked over, and there was John Nettles watching me. In the last month, something small with sharp teeth has bitten through my headphone wires. My cardboard next generation best of both worlds Borg Q VHS box set is now full of holes and hamster shit. And something has carved Star Trek is for cunts on the inside of my glasses. They wrote it backwards so I can read it. 
every time I put my glasses on. It gnaws at me as a gerbil would. How do I get rid of this demon hamster? Uh, ring the council about pests, uh, Mark, and um, please uh, stop sedating your girlfriend. And uh, maybe give the Expanse on Prime a try. It's supposed to be quite good. Anyway. It was a dark and stormy night in Liverpool, and four friends, Chris, Laura, Ralph and Magda, were hunkered down in the snug of Peter Cavanagh's Victorian pub, drinking real ale, and Laura was telling a tale that only Ralph thought was true. Hang on, barked Ralph. This is THE Miss Mackay. What do you mean? smiled Laura again. Are you trying to say you flicked experimental lesbian bacon with the fittest geography teacher of all time? Squawked Ralph, while his four friends used their pints to gag their sniggers. Yes, THE Miss Mackay, smirked Laura, idly twirling her cigarette. It was a bit like... Have you seen lesbian spank inferno, Ralph? Yeah, said Ralph immediately. One, two, three, and the crap soft course spin-offs. We've got a box set. It has a tin. It came in a commemorative tin. Exactly, said Laura, trying not to laugh. I haven't even kissed a girl before this. I didn't expect it to go so far so quickly. Before I knew it, she'd stripped me down to nothing but my tiny vest and pants, and she was... Yes, said Ralph eagerly. Yeah, yes. Actually, smiled Laura, I'm going to need a cigarette to finish this anecdote. She picked up her tobacco and scarf while sliding out of her chair. Anyone joining outside? No! barked Ralph. No! Don't go outside now! There's a story! Just come with them, said Fat Chris, picking up his packet of specially cut pepperami. I'll bum you one. I got ciggies, hissed Ralph. Just to know why we can't spark up in doors like back in the day, like... We were 17 when the smoking ban came in, Ralph. We've never smoked in pups. What is raiding out? said Ralph needily, in a last-ditch effort to make them stay. Then put your coat on, laughed Magda, grabbing her backy from her pointy hat. God, Barlow, you're such an old man bitch. Everyone stood up but Ralph, who remained steadfast and fuming, as he watched the gang walk out into the storm outside. He could see Laura begin to mime her made-up sapphic experience under the light of the patio heaters, purely to wind him up. I'm going for a bloody slash, grumbled Ralph, taking off the coat he'd been wearing to save his seat. He shouldered his way grumpily through the packed pub to the toilets. He failed to start two conversations at the urinals and exited without washing his hands. As he passed back through the snug, he noticed a walnut-panelled door in the corner. From beneath it, a faint but pleasant wisp of smoke curled upwards. Ralph moved forward for a closer look, but as he did so, a man opened the door and stepped into the pub, amid a great cloud of sweet-smelling smoke. Oh, I just like the smoking room, breathed Ralph before the man could pass him. The man from the smoking room looked up. Their eyes met. 
Ralph saw the fear in them and something else. Shame? Regret? Both? Both. Don't go in there, said the man rapidly. It's bad for you, and scurried away. Bollocks, wheezed Ralph. My dad smoked forty a day, and he lived till he died at forty-five. And with that, he stepped through the door and into the haze. The door clicked closed behind him, and Ralph now stood alone in a hazy corridor. The busy pub seemed far away. He patted his back pocket for his Super Kings and lighter and proceeded forward, smirking softly as devoted of his friends sparking up with shivering hands. Before him was a great red velvet curtain, its partition gently smoking like a snoozing dragon. He put the cigarette in his mouth, swept aside the red curtain, and stepped into the room. He was in a dark chamber. The smoke obscured much of it, save for a large wooden table in the shape of a wagon wheel, its outer packaging removed to keep its filling a mystery. Five hooded figures sat around its circumference, with a sixth chair left empty. Left for him. Right, lads, we've spoken inside here, yeah? said Ralph cheerily. The hooded figures kept their silence, but one gestured towards the empty chair. Ralph placed his cigarettes and lighter on the table and sat, his fingers drumming nervously on the varnished lacquer. Another side door opened, sending more smoke cascading into the room, its misty tendrils acting as an emissary to the seventh figure, hooded and robed like the others, but sporting a dazzling gold over the deep burgundy of its pedestrian peers. The Golden One crossed the room, its hooded features eyeing the newcomer briefly on its way to the bar, before producing a soft, dainty hand from the recesses of its robe, reaching out to the single wooden pump and grasping it erotically. The pump began to disgorge a black, opaque substance, which the Golden One caught in a tubelet-shaped glass, held at a 45-degree angle, pausing only when the glass reached three-quarter capacity, and repeating the process with another five glasses, before topping each off with a creamy, off-white head at its apex, and bringing them to the centre of the table. A perfect pint of Guinness, replicated sixfold. Cheers, love, Ralph said, having made an assumption and reached out to the nearest pint. The other hooded figures looked fixedly at the interloper in judgment. One of them raised a finger to the void where its lips would have been, and shushed him pointedly. Ralph withdrew his hand sheepishly. Transgression dealt with, the Golden One climbed atop the table and made its way to the middle pausing only to hitch the hem of its robe to pass over the tight circle of stouts at the table's focal point. Without warning, Ralph felt the cold hands of the hooded figures grip his own clammy palms, joining him in a circle which he only now realised there was no escape from. A chill went down Ralph's spine as the coven began to chant ominously. Their cowled countenances raised in awe towards the Golden One, the light streaming for its resplendent robe confirming the nakedness beneath. 
Ralph watched in mind-numbing terror as the Golden One placed a foot either side of the Guinness, squatting over them. The Golden One's firm hands grasped its buttocks and gently peeled them asunder, exposing its core, gently dilating before the enraptured gaze of the hooded figures below. There was a grunt of gentle effort, and it began. The thin golden robe was like a handkerchief draped over a car crash, a token shield of modesty incapable of shielding Ralph from the repugnance beneath as the head of the snake crested the fleshy hillocks with aplomb. <clears throat> if it were another time, another situation, and if it were his own, Ralph would have been proud of the ochre masterpiece curling out before his eyes. A single, unbroken length, with nary a kink nor coil in its structure. Solid. Compacted. Unbroken. Its only blemish, a peanut protruding cheekily from the shaft. Or perhaps it was a sweet corn kernel. It hardly mattered. Once it had reached around five inches, two in diameter, its gold-clad creator flexed almost imperceptibly, detaching the opus and sending it into freefall, plummeting towards its target, not at the whims of gravity, but at the calculated behest of an artist. There was a splash from beneath the robes. Ralph watched the Golden One hitch their vestments once more and step off the table, re-revealing the six pints of Guinness he had been crouched over. They were all pristine, their dark waters still, none betraying the khaki incumbent. He hadn't seen which one it had landed in. The hooded figures began to chant again, and the table began to turn. Ralph began to panic now. He hadn't seen which one it had landed in. The chanting became louder and louder as the Guinness glasses pirouetted faster and faster. He hadn't seen which one it had landed in. Soon, sooner than he would have liked, the table began to slow its rotation, and the six pints of Guinness ceased their twirling and began to settle. They remained, though, steadfastly opaque. They kept their secrets. Ralph watched, dumbstruck, as each of the five hooded figures reached across the table and plucked the pint from out in front of them, drawing it into a more comfortable drinking position. The six remained in front of him. Drink, said the Golden One, gesturing to the forlorn and lonely pint of Guinness. I... I don't want to, Ralph said. He was crying now. The Golden One placed the pint firmly in front of him. Its other hand caressed him as a praying mantis would its lover. Drink, it said. He reached a shaking hand around the pint glass, barely paying mind to the hooded figures around him, following his every move with precise synchronicity. Ralph tried to gauge the weight as he lifted the glass off the table, desperately searching for something, anything to clarify its contents. But no such salvation came. The glass had reached his lips now. He hesitated and felt the Golden One's grip tighten on his neck. Drink. He drank. 
His heart soared in his chest with relief as his palate was rewarded with the sweet, unaffected malts of the black stuff. Notes of coffee and chocolate breaking through the hoppy bitterness. His eyes scanned the hooded figures around him with joy, wondering which one of them had been the ill-fated loser of Guinness Roulette. Then, Ralph felt something bump gently against his upper lip. The golden one placed a finger at the bottom of the pint glass and gently but forcefully pushed upwards, down, in, one. Soon, the gentle bobs on his lip became a constant, weighty pressure as the thing in his pint broke the black waters, like a beluga whale surfacing the ocean for fresh air, or a whole cucumber in your pims. His mouth was filling up. Soon, he had no choice but to swallow. It had definitely been a peanut. After an interminable eternity, Ralph finished the dregs and set the pint glass as far out of his eyesight as he could reach. He grabbed his lighter, pulled up his hood, and made his way through the busy bar, out into the storm. And he never complained about smoking outside, ever again.